Uh, welcome to the forum. Um, we hold the forum the second Sunday of every month, and um, we're going to be talking about uh, search and rescue today. And um, let's see, this is uh, Jennifer Young, who's a member of our board, our vice president, and uh, Steve Howard, our, our, our presenters today. And what's the name of the dog? This is Maddie. Ah, that Wendy Brunish has given a very similar talk for a couple of decades, and so I wanted to acknowledge her as an author, but she won't be here today. Okay, thank you. Um, so let me read a little, uh, a little blurb about our, our talk today before, as way of introduction. Um, hundreds of volunteers spend their time and treasure to train and acquire special equipment to support search and rescue efforts in New Mexico and Southern Colorado. This forum will be an introduction to the logistics, command structure and canine, Maddie, um, search and uh, search teams employed in the execution of a search. The presentation will be followed by a short demonstration by our canine air scent team. Um, this topic is very of great interest to me. Um, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I haven't made use of search and rescue yet, but I've had at least one case in which I did a self-rescue uh, that took me three days. So um, I'm very happy that there are professionals doing this sort of work as well. <laughs> Jennifer? Yep, I have the clicker. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for the kind introduction, Evan. Yeah, my name is Steve Howard. I'm a member of the Los Alamos Auxiliary Fire Brigade. The name's historical. Back in the early 50s, we truly were an auxiliary to the fire department and fought fires. Since the Department of Energy and the county eventually took over firefighting, we moved into search and rescue as our primary mission. But we kept the name because it was historical and confuses people, so we, we like that. Uh, yes, as he mentions, what I'm going to talk about today, and Jennifer as well, we're going to talk about what we do, how we do it, and the types of resources that are available to, to, conduct, that, to conduct that mission. So right now, we're all sitting comfortably here in our chairs. We know where we are. We're comfortable. Everything's good. However, there may come a time when you or a loved one in dire straits in the wilderness. And when I mean wilderness, I mean outside of urban, urban areas. Maybe you've hiking around and all of a sudden realize you've passed that same boulder three times now and you're supposed to be back at the parking lot. Or you tripped over that boulder and broke your ankle and can no longer walk. So let's assume the worst case situation and now you're in dire straits in the wilderness. What happens next? Well. I'll ask you right now, what if something, an emergency happened right here in this room? Someone uh, had a medical emergency, what would, what would happen? Anybody? Exactly. And that's generally what's going to happen to activate search and rescue. I'll talk later how that can change slightly if someone knows, but in general, someone is going to, going to call 911. In the past, it used to be family or friends when the subject didn't show up. Uh, for dinner on time, but now the cell phone service reaching further and further into the wilderness, we're actually getting more and more 
calls come directly from the subject themselves. It's amazing, me, amazing to me sometimes how far back into the wilderness I can actually get cell phone service. So they call 911. 911 dispatch answers, says, 911, what's your emergency? Person says, I've been hiking on the Windsor Trail all day, and I tripped, and I fell, and I, I, I think I broke my ankle. I can't walk anymore. Well, the 911 dispatch operators are trained to recognize when a wilderness emergency, emergency comes in. Their next, their, their step then is to contact the state police dispatch and uh, start a mission that way. Why the state police? Well, search and rescue in New Mexico is run under the New Mexico Department of Public Service, uh, safety I mean, and specifically the state police. So we're actually under the state, state police. That has several advantages. Many, many states in the country run their search and rescue through, the, through local sheriff's offices, which are often county-based. So sometimes they can run into jurisdictional in, uh, issues if a, if a search bleeds across into somebody else's county. But since we're with the state police, our jurisdiction is, is statewide, and we don't have any of those kind of issues. Plus, as being part of the Department of Public Service, once we're on a mission, we're also covered by state insurance as well, in case any of us manage accidentally gets hurt, hurt during a mission. So the dispatcher then assigns a state police officer who's been trained in, in, in managing these missions. That police officer becomes the mission initiator. They do an initial investigation and determine, well, is this really a wilderness situation? And if they, if they agree that, yep, this is definitely a wilderness situation, then they call the on-call uh, field coordinator. And this is where we transition from a paid position to an unpaid volunteer position. From here on out, the mission is run and managed by unpaid volunteers. Once the field coordinator then looks at it and says, oh, yep, I agree, this is definitely a wilderness situation, does his and his or her additional investigation, they become the incident commander and they take over uh, the mission at this point. They'll do an initial look and see, say, okay, well, this is what, these are the resources I think I'll need to run this mission. They then contact an ordering manager uh, or ORDM. I wear that. That's a hat, one of the hats that I wear. The ordering manager's job is to say, okay, the incident commander needs these types of resources. My job is to know what teams in the state that are closest to the mission can offer those resources. Call those resources, get them get, heading into the field, and then let the incident commander know how many, what resources are coming, how many people, and at what time they're going to arrive. I also help keep track of the teams, just monitor their progress, to and from their home to incident base and back so we don't lose anybody uh, in, the, in the process. While teams are gathering and getting ready to head to the incident base, the incident commander then starts setting up the incident base himself. It's usually just his pickup truck, his or her pickup truck, or their personal vehicle. There are specialized vehicles around the state that they can call in if the mission gets big enough that have like an RV that's been fitted with tables and communications and environmental control and good lighting uh, or trailers that they can call in 
to act as a better workspace than just their truck. Uh, but often it's, it's just their truck. Now the incident commander is going to set up incident base based on the incident command system. Now the incident command system is a nationwide, I think it may be even a worldwide recognized um, system, but it's a hierarchical system with well-defined roles and responsibilities that everyone is familiar with so that if we have to work with other teams, for example, everyone knows and it can, the, the effort can go smoothly. The incident command system was really designed to help efficiently run temporary type operations. So emergency situations, natural disasters, search and rescue, other things like that are usually a temporary type situation. Something comes up, you have to manage it, and then you're done. So it's been widely adopted by emergency services and emergency response personnel in the country. But that doesn't mean it's limited to, search, to emergency services. Uh, for example, the Albuquerque Balloon Festi Festival going on, I don't know if they do or not, but they could. They could run that system via the, using the incident command system, again, because it's a temporary system. One of the other advantages is it can, can expand and contract depending on how big the mission is. There are a handful of section chiefs that need to be filled underneath the incident commander to help the incident commander do their job. For search and rescue, we really only need like three of those, three of those positions. Usually, the incident commander usually assigns a planning section chief, an operations section chief, and the logistics section chief. The logistics has kind of already been taken care of because that's the ordering manager. They're responsible for gathering up resources. Then the planning uh, section chief works with the incident commander to decide what the tactics and strategies would be and comes up with assignments for individual teams to accomplish uh, that mission and hands those assignments over to the se operations section chief who then gathers up the teams together, assigns people to individual teams, briefs them on what they're doing, and then manages them in the field. Now, again, I said this can expand and contract as needed. If it's a small search or a small incident, often the incident commander will do all three of those jobs. Uh, otherwise, he may or he may call on, he or she may call on one individual to come and help him at incident base, and they may do both uh, planning and ops. But as the, as the incident gets, gets larger, uh, you can often see uh, several people uh, at incident base helping uh, run the mission. So now, teams are arriving at incident base. The operations section chief gathers them all together, assigns them to teams, briefs them on what they're doing, and everyone heads out into the, all the teams head out into the field to find our subject. And with all luck, they find the subject, everything goes well, they bring the subject back to incident base, everyone gets debriefed, and we all go home. That works. I haven't seen the latest statistics, but in the high 90s percent of the time. There's very few cases in the whole state of New Mexico where we have a negative outcome. Generally what happens is we either end up not finding the person, and we've exhausted all of our resources, we've exhausted all of our clues, we've searched the area so thoroughly that the probability of finding that person in the area no longer 
I have to say, if it justifies the risk of sending teams into the field, because there's always risk of going into the field. On a nice day like this, there's less risk. But if we're going out in the middle of a snowstorm or at the middle of night, it can be kind of risky for, to send teams out. It's not an easy decision to, to close down a, a mission without finding the subject. That's usually done by our resource officer, Bob Rogers, and that's I forgot to mention earlier, that's the one exception to the unpaid volunteers. Bob actually runs the entire search and rescue program in New Mexico and is, that's an actually a paid position. And it's not an easy decision to make. He looks at, there's, there's a rather significant assessment that needs to be done. There's lots of math involved uh, to help determine a, an actual probability uh, of that the subject would, should have been found in that area if they were in that area. The other possibility, of course, is the subject doesn't make it, and we find the subject deceased. So that's a good segue into talking about the various teams that are available to the incident commander. Either one of those scenarios that I just talked about can be very stressful for search and rescue members. There is a team in New Mexico called the Critical Incident Stress Management Team. They are a group of, again, volunteers who are specially trained in helping people work through stressful situations. And that team is available to, for, to New Mexico. Uh, the brigade has enlisted their services several times over, over the years when we've had uh, a negative situation. It's pretty easy. You just call an 800 number and say, hey, this is what happened, and we have these members, and we'd like a critical incident stress person to come out. And they come out, do a critical incident stress debriefing. It's very helpful in, in helping people work through uh, stressful situations like that. Other teams that are available to the incident commander are the ground pounders. Talking about them first, sorry, it's my priority. For the last 38 years, that's the hat I've worn. I'm primarily a ground pounder. What ground pounders do is we lace up our boots, put on a backpack with all the gear we need to keep us, sustain us in the field, and a little bit of extra gear to help the subject if we find them. Hike the trails, walk the terrain, looking for the subject, looking for clues to the subject. That's our primary job. We do end up helping other teams. For example, we'll provide support for the canine teams so that uh, Jennifer, for example, can concentrate solely on the behavior of her dog, and then I'll handle navigation and I'll carry extra gear and, and talk on, uh, talking on the radio. We'll also, we all could also help out the uh, technical rescue teams, hauling rope, hauling gear. Uh, if a patient, if a subject is injured and we've had to load them into a litter, we can help carry a litter. So there's many jobs that the ground pounder can do. Another team that's very important for search and rescue is the canines. I'll let Jennifer talk about that. Another team is uh, mounted search and rescue teams. These are people on horseback. Their primary advantage is horses have a lot of stamina. They can go long distances and carry a lot of gear. Uh, they can help ground pounders carry gear. Their higher perch also gives them advantage in being able to look. They can see over brush and, and the terrain better. So they're, they're a useful resource. I mentioned earlier someone may be fallen or broken an ankle. What if they're injured on a, uh, in steep terrain? Maybe a rock climber in the Sandias has taken a fall and is halfway down the cliff and injured. 
We have technical rescue teams who have specialized skill in using ropes and pulley systems to reach people in steep terrain and then uh, stabilize them, put them in a litter, and uh, haul them out. There aren't too many of those teams in New Mexico because it takes a lot of training and, and to do that. There's a team in Santa Fe, a team in Albuquerque, and a team in Las Cruces. We also have, we also have several uh, four-wheel and off-road vehicle teams, four-wheel drives, ATVs, UTVs. They're very useful in clearing roads. Um, so rather than have someone walk a road, let's have an ATV or four-wheel drive go back and forth on a road in case the subject comes out on a road. They can haul gear, they can uh, ferry teams around. Uh, and often if we find a subject, they can help haul the, haul the subject out if they can't walk. We also have access to several types of aircraft, uh, mainly helicopters. We can call on the New Mexico Air National Guard Black Hawk helicopters. Uh, New Mexico State Police uh, has a helicopter that we can use. Uh, New Mexico, the Albuquerque Police Department, we've used their helicopter several times. Bernalillo County Sheriff's has a nice helicopter we've used in the past. <clears throat> uh, this, the Civil Air Patrol can also fly fixed-wing aircraft uh, for us. Oh, and I also forgot to mention, pictured there is actually Classic Air. You've seen their helicopter around uh, Los Alamos. They'll fly, they'll fly two hours free for a SAR mission. Uh, drones are actually becoming quite useful uh, as well, both in looking for, looking for individuals. And where, I, where I've primarily seen them really useful lately is we think we have an idea where the subject is, so we fly a drone in and, co and cover that area real quick and say, oh, there's the subject, and here's the terrain surrounding them. Here's what it's going to take to get to them. So drones are becoming quite useful. There's a handful of other specialized teams around the state trackers that actually get on their hands and knees and, and actually follow uh, subjects' uh, trail. They have cave rescue teams, uh, teams that are devoted strictly to com communications, uh, et cetera. But as, as Evan mentioned, there's hundreds of people. I think I heard at one point there might be even be close to 1,000 people around the state of New Mexico ready to go out into the wilderness any time of day or night in any weather to help, as New Mexico Search and Rescue's motto is, so that others may live. So anyway, I think I've rambled on long enough. I'll uh, turn it over to Jennifer. And let me come down there and take care of Maddie for you. Come on, Maddie. OK, can you all hear me? Do I need to speak up? Okay, so um, I'm Jennifer Young, that's Maddie. She's my favorite topic to talk about. So, uh, um, oops, I went backwards. Okay, so um, search dogs, what do, how do they do that? So you guys have probably seen uh, bloodhounds on TV and they do these amazing long tracks to find people. So I'm gonna go through a little bit about why dogs are useful and um, why they're a great asset to have in a wilderness search. So we're gonna start by talking about canine olfactory physiology. 
And this is how do dogs smell, used as a verb. And then human scent, how humans smell, that's an adjective in that case. And then what affects our ability, the dog's ability to detect scent, uh, training canines for scent work, and then search and rescue work. And then we're going to do a, a short demonstration here and then go outside and show you an, an area scent demonstration. Okay, so when puppies are born, they are a smelling machine. Uh, they, they have the sense of smell when they're a puppy that they're going to have as an adult. So the difference between humans and canines is in the number of uh, olfactory sensors and the uh, volume of the brain that's devoted to smell. So humans have five million, roughly, receptors that cover the area of a postage stamp. Dogs have somewhere between 120 to 300 million receptors that are, cover an area the size of a pocket handkerchief. So they have a lot more um, receptors to uh, use to detect scent. Um, there's also a huge difference between the olfactory gland in a dog and in a person. I have an image of that. Dogs also have scent receptors in their mouths and they can use to uh, further refine the scent. Um, dogs have these very intricate bony nasal cavities and the, they don't inflate their lungs like we do. They sniff and when the next breath doesn't necessarily clear out the scent and so they can accumulate these odor molecules in the bony nasal passages and therefore concentrate the scent and that lets them um, uh, distinguish it from all the background scent that's around. Let's see. These dogs can discriminate between identical twins. You know that uh, their clothes are washed in the same laundry, so it's not the laundry scent, it's something different about uh, the persons themselves. And what's, what's interesting is if a dog crosses a track, so a person's gone you know, this way or gone that way, a dog crosses the track, they can tell which way they went. Not just that they were there, but they can tell which way. And so I had a tracking dog, uh, uh, let's see, 16 years ago. We would practice this, she would cross the track, She'd always go uh, upstream, if you will. She'd always go the direction that they came from for about 20 feet, and then she'd turn around and zip off the other way. So they can sense the gradient in the smell. And so the more recently someone has passed, uh, the stronger the scent. Okay, so this is a, a crude image of the difference between Where's the, where's the uh, pointer? Is it on this? The top thing? So the olfactory cells in the dog are all in here. And the hum these are the humans. And then the, here's the olfactory uh, lobe in a human. And this is the size of the dog. So that's, that's kind of why they can, uh, or the basis for them to have such a, 
increased sense of smell over us. So I've seen estimates of their, their sense of smells 40 to 1,000 times better than ours. Although I recently heard a story on NPR, there are humans that have, they call it super omeria or something like that, that can have a tremendous sense of smell and can detect uh, medical conditions in people, but they are very, very rare. Okay, so that's how dogs smell, verb. Humans are like pig pen. We are constantly shedding cells. The estimate is approximately 40,000 every minute. And then these cells carry bacteria that, um, when, which combines with the sweat that our bodies produce and that produces odor. Uh, I don't think anyone knows exactly what the dogs are smelling because um, you can take a, a scent article that has contacted various parts of the body, you know, and just, and the dog will still know it's that person. If, I may not be saying that clearly, but people can detect scent from different parts of the body, but they won't know who the person is. But the dog can take scent from any part of the body and it will uh, be able to uniquely identify the person it came from. Okay, factors that affect scent detection, and this is important when we go out on searches. I mean, the individual, I've never, <coughs> there's, pro there's a likely a difference between um, the ability to detect a scent from one person to another, but it's always detectable. The time it's been, so, a lot of times on, uh, by the time uh, the incident commander has determined that he needs canine resources in the field, quite a bit of time has passed. And this is not a problem with the system, it's a problem with uh, some, we had a case a, a year ago where the man was missing for days before we even knew where to start looking. And so by that time, a lot of the scent is gone. Uh, the temperature, high temperature is gonna dilute this, the, or volatilize the scent so that we do know the scent is uh, somewhat volatile. Um, the strength of the wind. So high winds will blow the scent, will distribute the scent further. Not good for tracking dogs, fine for air scent dogs. And I'll talk about the difference briefly. Humidity, the higher humidity you have, the easier it is for the dogs to pick up on the scent. So dogs that train here in New Mexico and go back east for a uh, conference or something, they're in heaven because suddenly there's just so much scent compared to what they're able to pick up here. Um, and pressure. And then the surfaces matter. Is it concrete? Is it grass? Is it dirt? Uh, so is it something that will uh, contain the scent or is it something the scent is going to blow, blow across? Barriers or channels. The, the barriers are natural barriers or channels in the, in the uh, wilderness like uh, ravines and things like that. Those create interesting uh, problems. So the <clears throat> when a dog team has trouble, it's usually not the dog. It's usually the human that's having, um, that needs to help the dog get out of a scent pool or um, 
you know, the dog can detect scent out, the scent's coming from over top of a ridge and the dog can smell it here, but moves this way and can't, doesn't have the scent anymore. So the human handler has to help them figure out where that scent could possibly be coming from. And then there's always uh, interfering scents. So wild animals, chemicals, food for a Labrador. Um, and then we did a, a search down in White Rock just after the, the last fire and that smoke was so heavy it was hard to know if they were gonna, if, if not this, not Maddie, but uh, another dog. Hard to know if they were able to pick anything up, but so interfering scents can be a problem. And this is the, the flow of the scent that I was trying to describe. So it can come, come off just like a water, waterfall and they get out of the waterfall and then the human has, the dog gets out of the waterfall and the human has to help them find it again. Scent can travel down a ravine and so if you cross the bottom of a ravine, the, the dog could pop their head and then you gotta go, go up and, and find where it's coming from. And then for air scent dog, which Maddie is a certified air scent dog, uh, the conditions matter a lot to how efficiently we can search. So if there's a, uh, a relatively steady wind in a single direction, you can watch Maddie pick the scent up, her head will pop, and then she will actually work this scent cone back to the subject. It's really cool to see. But um, that's not usually the case out here where we practice. Usually the wind is going east one minute, west the next, north and south. It's really squirrely. And so you, this is meant to represent a barrier. This is meant to represent scrub oak. So you can see a dog kind of pick up the scent, but then they have to work their way around this barrier. Then they go and sniff in the scrub oak for a while. And then they go, well, they're not there. So let's go. Oh, okay, there they are. Right, so it's, that's where the handler has to really help the dog um, uh, know where to look next when they lose that scent. And then <coughs> in inside situations, uh, the scent travels in a way you might not expect. So this is person hiding here. Their scent is rising because it's somewhat volatile hits the ceiling, travels across, comes back down, and the dog comes in the room, picks it up here, and gets stuck because uh, there's no, no continuous pathway to the subject. So that's when the handler has to help them make the transition across the room. So the thing I like to use is when I go into, coming from the garage into the house, <laughs> it's on the bottom floor, you can smell the nice aromas coming from the kitchen, you go up the stairs and they're gone until you get to the kitchen because the aromas have come up, they've traveled across the ceiling and down the stairwell. <coughs> so that's what's happening with the dog. Okay, so when we train these dogs for search and rescue, first we have to teach them commands. They have to associate those commands with specific actions. There's three types of canine teams that I've worked with. <coughs> so
air scent area search, so they, um, they aren't following a track. They're just taking a defined area and they're searching that area, <clears throat> either scent specific or non-scent specific to find people out there. There's tracking and trailing dogs, so they actually follow the path that the person took. Um, and then there are cadaver and HRD dogs. So when the ordering manager is deciding what resources to bring out, uh, they will assess the probability. Well, I, I don't know how you actually do it, but what we are guessing <laughs> is they're going, okay, they're assessing the probability that this person is still alive. And that's situationally dependent. And as Steve said, that's, that's a very hard type of search to be on. Um, the dog has to have a clear alert that they have found someone, so it doesn't do us any good, particularly in area search, if they go wander around, find you, and then they say, ah, nice to see you, and they head back and go, hmm, and don't show you where they are. So you'll hopefully get to see Maddie's very distinct alert. And then they have other components of training the dog, obedience training. In the wilderness, they need to be agile to get a jump over all these trees and logs and up and down rocks and up and down steep slopes. Sometimes you just send the dog up the slope because you can't physically get there or you're being lazy that Saturday morning and it's just practice. <laughs> so, and directability. And then we have to have good communication so that she knows what I want and I know what she's telling me. Um, okay. Oops. And in the future, maybe this will happen. So this is some bloodhounds looking at an online computer. First they do an online search. Not there yet. So what traits should a SAR dog have? I mean, technically, any dog that's got a good sniffer could work, but they have to be smart. We talk about something called intelligent disobedience. So if the handler is trying to get the dog to go somewhere, uh, that is not the right way to go, and the dog goes, no, they're, they're really over here. You know, you have to be able to trust your dog and go with them, and they have to be confident enough to tell you and not just obey your random command. They have to be strong, they have to be agile, they can't be timid, they can't be the type of dog that's gonna be unpredictable, so they have to be stable. They have to want to work. Uh, I had a uh, lab prior to Maddie who was, had the best nose of all the dogs, but she didn't have the stamina and she didn't have the drive. So she wasn't, um, wasn't really a good, we trained her for cadaver, which is fine because that's not um, as, uh, I'll, I'll just stop there. We trained her for cadaver. They, it's better if they like people um, and, and they have good social interactions because when they find someone you don't want them to scare the subject, and they clearly have to have a good rapport with their handler. These are just some images of search dogs at work. So this is a, this is Wendy with her uh, trailing dog. This is a training uh, bark tube. So if we w want the dog to alert by barking, we'll p hide a person in there, and the dog has to bark before the lid pops off, and they get a treat. The, this is a, um, a Dutch Shepherd, or that may be, 
That may be Jack. That's a Mal, Malinois. And they are trailing. And then this is a dog being loaded onto a helicopter. So we've done a, uh, what do they call that? A cold, a cold load. So Maddie has gotten onto a helicopter that was, the, the blades weren't rotating. And we weren't going anywhere. It was just practice. But it, <clears throat> it's something you got to practice because the surface, the, the vehicle's weird, the surface is slippery, and if you haven't practiced it before, you'll freak your dog out. Uh, some of our team, this isn't wilderness search and rescue, but you know, almost 25 years ago, uh, volunteers from Los Alamos went to the Oklahoma City tornado. We had people go to the Pentagon. Um, this was before my time in search and rescue. Uh, so this is at the Oklahoma City. That is, that's Wendy. You might recognize Debbie Miller, I believe it is now. And I don't know who this is. Is that, um, it could be, uh, uh, I don't know who it is. Okay. So we'll take just a couple minutes. So talked about hiking. Um, Evan talked about having to do a self-rescue. I assume it's because, he was able to do that because he had the things with him he needed to have. But the weather can change really quickly in Los Alamos. So uh, it's bright and sunny now. It could be raining later. You can get hypothermic really quick. So, you know, take something to, whoops, to protect yourself from, if you're going out on a long hike, you know, from wind and rain and make sure you have water and snacks. And these days, take your phone. Um, you know, Map and Compass, that's old school, and that's a great backup. GPS are a lot of free apps for phones, so uh, do that. And then, you know, anticipate a change in temperature and take the appropriate clothing. And the most important thing is tell someone where you're going, when you're, you expect to be back, because they are the first person who can go, hey, you're missing, right? So if you do have an accident or you don't have cell service, they can get resources to you sooner rather than later. And if you're hiking with folks, stay as a group. Um, the, so, okay. And then if you do get lost, stay put. Take a whistle with you, blow it, yell, and wait for someone to find you. There's always caveats to things like this, but the, the best thing is not to be wandering around. And one thing I forgot to put on this is a, is a small mirror. You know, if you, you can reflect sunlight off a mirror and you can catch the eye of somebody up in the air, and uh, that, that will help. Bright clothing helps. An orange or yellow jacket versus a black jacket. So, you guys ready for a demo? Oh, yes. Sorry about that. I forgot about that part. And we're running over a little bit, so. Uh, does anyone have a question that they'd like to ask this time? Yeah, okay. Don't worry. I guess we'll see some of this in the demo about how they, how you know they have the scent and then they don't have the scent or whatever. 
But how long does it take to train a dog to do this? It depends on the dog, and it depends even more on the person. Um, do you agree? <laughs> it can take, so, so I trained, or Maddie trained me in, started training in January of 21. You can come, she can come up here. Started training in January of 21. We took our level one certification test in March of 22. So a little over a year. And we took our level two certification test that the following December. So about nine months later. She's three and a half. So she, I got her when she was four months, you can sit. I got her when she was four months old. And um, I waited a couple of months because she, and then she started demonstrating this incredible intellect and drive and I, this dog needed a job, so. Um, that's what we did. If someone calls in a, with a cell phone, is it uh, fairly often can you triangulate and find them for, with, from the cell phone? And also second part of that. Uh, recently we, I heard that with texts they can't find you. If you text, send in a text, they can't tell you where, to tell where you are. So yeah, most new cell phones, the smartphones, um, when they call 911, they can actually pull coordinates off those phones right away. So many of our missions nowadays are subject actually calls in, we have coordinates, and the mission is send a team in to get them, and then hope that their cell phone doesn't die and that they stay put. Because we've had situations where people will call in, will get their coordinates, their cell phone dies, and then they start wandering, and we go to their coordinates, and then a becomes a much longer uh, mission. Older cell phones that you can't necessarily get uh, coordinates off right away, yes, you can triangulate. You can see how it pings several, several cell towers, and then they can get a pretty good accurate uh, d d destination that way. And even if your phone, for example, doesn't have enough s signal to actually make a telephone call, often it'll still have enough signal that the uh, local cell tower will get a ping from that phone and then you can triangulate uh, off of that. And yeah, texting, you can't, my understanding is you cannot get coordinates directly from a text. But if you can text the person, you can instruct them how to get, how to read, you know, your smartphone has a compass on it, it'll tell you exactly where it is. Uh, you can send them an app, uh, a short little app that they can run and it'll tell them what the coordinates are. So, yes. Uh, sh shall we get to the demo? Yeah. Did you have something? Yes, I have a question about drones, perhaps uh, looking a bit into the future. Um, do you anticipate that drones will eventually be something that you can train to match the contour and just say go and they do the job? Uh, the drones nowadays will pretty much do that. You can program the program the drone to follow a given uh, a given course. I'm not an, I'm not too much up on drones, so I don't know if you can actually have them if they'll actually sense the terrain and follow the terrain yet. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them can, and if not, that's probably not too far off in the future. Because look at uh, cars nowadays; they have all the radar sensors in, can can do proximity location and tell when you're getting too close to somebody else. I would imagine that technology, if it's not already there, will be there real quick. 
We've certainly already programming, programmed them to fly a pre-programmed path. All right, thank you, Steve. Uh, so do you want to give us instructions about your demonstration, what we should need to do? Um, sure. So what I, what I was going to do, do, can we go over? I mean, we're already over, right, aren't we, yeah, on yeah. time? So I wanted to show a little bit about obedience and, and a little bit of directability with these platforms here. And then Steve is going to go hide for us outside and we'll have you all walk out through the, um, the coffee, the fellowship room, and I'll go out the front door and come around, and I'll do the little ritual with her that we do before a search and then send her to search for Steve. Does that sound interesting? Okay, so stay. So important things are treats. Uh-uh. Sit, sit, down, down, down over there. <laughs> she already knows the game. Okay, off, off. Okay. She's like, can I try this one? I'll try this one. This is a clicker that just gives her instant um, feedback. Maddie, please. Uh-uh, please. Sit, sit. Over. 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 <laughs> Maddie, sit. So you could hear the little, the little, uh, she's getting a little frustrated because it's a new environment. Sit. Good girl. Good girl. Okay, so we're ready to go outside. So, Steve, you want to go hide? You can clap now. But we didn't do the sit, sit, shake. Good girl, down. Good, yes, okay. 